Tuesday, November 28th. Welcome to another edition of the 801. On board this morning, we'll have news, sports, weather, and time checks. I'm Kent Garrett. You're listening to WIOX Community Radio, 91.3 FM, and MTC Cable Channel 20 in the Catskills. And we are streaming to the world on WIOXradio.org. Plus, you can hear us at 107.5 FM on the SUNY Delhi campus. Coming up, two more days of truce in Gaza. The death toll in Gaza has few, quote, precedents in modern history. And 80% of Palestinians identified by Israel as eligible for release have not been charged. Plus, Israel's killing of civilians is unprecedented. Those stories and more coming up. We begin the A Block this morning with the war in Gaza. Crystal and Sagar discuss new horrifying images out of Gaza showing massive levels of destruction. The death toll in Gaza has few, quote, precedents in modern history. Here's their report. One of the things that administration officials unbelievably leaked to the press was that they were worried that during the course of this temporary pause, journalists would be able to get into Gaza and people would be able to see the extent of the horrors and the carnage and the devastation that has already been wrought. And in fact, some of those images have emerged in the days of this temporary truce. Let's put this up on the screen. I mean, just unimaginable the level of destruction that you see in city after city. Um, These places that we're showing you here are all in the northern part of the Gaza Strip. Now, that doesn't mean the South has been safe, but the preponderance of the bombing campaign has been in northern Gaza, where uh, Gaza City, which obviously is where the bulk of the population was, has been utterly destroyed, completely uninhabitable. Here you see a main road that is just littered with bodies strewn about the road and horrific to see. Um, here you see you know, people gathered in the shadow of bombed out, destroyed buildings. And you know, in terms of Northern Gaza, and this is coming out from you know, Gaza civilians, Palestinians who are trying to return home, there's nothing left. I mean, there are, no, there are very few homes to return to in the Northern part of the Gaza Strip. Um, New York Times put together a piece just showing the historic level in modern times of this destruction and carnage. Put this up on the screen. So their headline is Gaza civilians under Israeli barrage are being killed at a historic pace. Even a conservative assessment of the reported Gaza casualty figures shows the death rate during Israel's assault has few precedents in this century. You can see this chart, leave this up on the screen, um, from when they started reporting the number of women and children who have been killed in this conflict. You can see how it makes up the overwhelming preponderance of the number of deaths. It's somewhere around 70% of the people killed uh, by Israeli attacks here have been women and children. So even if you say everyone else, which is very generous, is a Hamas militant, you can see at the very least 70% of um, these deaths have come from women 
and from children. You know, I encourage you to read this article to get a little bit of perspective on the scale and scope of this destruction in such a short period of time, in such a small area too, where people are packed in and they cannot by and large leave. Um, more women and children have been reported killed in Gaza in less than two months than the roughly 7,700 civilians documented as killed by US forces and their international allies in the first year of the invasion of Iraq in 2003. And the number of women and children killed is starting to approach the roughly 12,400 civilians documented to have been killed by the U.S. and its allies in Afghanistan during nearly 20 years of war. Um, so it gives you a sense of just, I mean, this is something different that we're seeing here. There is no comparison in terms of modern history of the amount of attacks on civilian infrastructure, the amount of women and children and civilians that are killed. And one of the things that struck me here, Sagar, that I, I thought you mm -hmm. might pick up on because it's something we've been talking about is mm -hmm. there are a lot of comparisons made to our um, campaign in Mosul. And they talk about how when we were um, when we were in Mosul, we even thought 500 pound bombs were too much because it's this densely packed urban area. Well, Israel has been routinely dropping 2,000 pound bombs. Again, we said 500 pound bombs, that's too much. They're routinely dropping 2,000 pound bombs on what is one of the most densely packed parts of the entire world. Yeah, I mean, I actually, this is something I talked a lot about. If people are interested, I interviewed Jocko Willink. This is something I was trying to get at with him, which is the fundamental difference, I think, uh, between the way that the U.S. and its partners operated in Iraq and Afghanistan, especially 2011 onward, and counter-ISIS campaigns and urban, uh, even urban combat environments versus the way that Israel has decided to conduct this war. Uh, one of the things that Jocko said, which actually really surprised me, is like, during the Battle of Ramadi, he's like, I think I called in maybe five airstrikes during my entire year. Well, all we did was we were, he was like, like we went in, we identified the target, we had our guys on the ground, and that obviously puts you, your troops, at tremendous amounts of risk. That said, one of the things that U.S. commanders were had a mandate for, even from that period forward, was we are minimizing civilian casualties because our purpose is to get the civilian populace on our side and to try and separate the terrorists from the overall civilian population. That's one of the other reasons. If you think, too, about the calculus of the bin Laden raid, the easiest thing to do for Osama bin Laden was drop a bunker buster bomb on his compound. Yeah. The reasons that we decided not to do that is, well, it's in Pakistan. We're definitely, you're not only going to kill every woman and child in the house, you're going to kill probably and flatten every single building around it, yep. but it's not worth it because it would start an international incident and we would lose more high ground. And so we put our people in a tremendous amount of risk and we sent them 160 miles in this territory to go kill, grab the body. And at the end of the day, you only you ended up killing people who had a weapon in their hand and you were able to bring it back. I think that's one of the reasons why if you look back on it, it's not only look back with such uh, like affection, you know, in terms of finally getting the person who killed, uh, who was responsible for 9/11, is that it didn't come with all of the attendant collateral damage and the you know the drones that have ended up accidentally hitting a wedding and all these other stains on the U.S. campaign during terrorism. And yeah. this highlighted it actually to me the most, which is really the last time America conducted itself was during Vietnam. That was the last time that we did anything like this, and I think we all remember. You know, and can even look at the idea that the entire idea behind the massive bombing campaign from Nixon to JFK, or sorry, to Nixon to LBJ, was they were like, we can bomb these people into submission. And what they ultimately didn't understand is A, we were dealing with ideological actor, and B, that they were just going to conduct guerrilla warfare and insurgency and outlast us the entire time. So that raises the question of like, Israel, what is your strategy? And this has been my fundamental, I think, criticism and departure from them is I have... 
absolute sympathy, not even sympathy, I support the idea of killing every Hamas terrorist who was uh, responsible for this attack. I even support dismantling the organization, but from day one, uh, especially with a lot of their actions, it just remains questionable about what they want in the future. And I would, again, point people back to that Jocko interview because one of the things that we really established, a big area between us, and subsequently in talking with Daryl Cooper at Martyr Made Podcast, mm -hmm. is that we were like, there has to be a baseline level of trust from the civilian population for this to move forward. Because at the end of this, one day this bombing will end. One day it will end. And we have to think about what the end state of that is going to be. We can bomb for a month, we can bomb for two, we could bomb for 20 years, as we all found out in Afghanistan. But if we don't have a sustainable political project at the core of that, something will crumble and will give, ultimately. So in the interim, just thousands and thousands of people are dying. And I mean, you can't help on a human level but think about that oh, as tragic. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the number of new Hamas militants or other varieties of uh, radicals that are being created by the horrors that are being inflicted on them, like it's incalculable. So even if that if your only concern is long-term security for the people of Israel, then this has been a dramatic error and dramatic mistake. And you know, there have been a lot of Netanyahu has been making all mm. these comparisons to World War II and like, oh, what about the bombing of Dresden? Like it was fine to kill civilians then. Well, there's a reason why after World War II, why we had the Geneva Conventions and why we said we can't, we can't have wars like this again. We have to put civilians and civilian infrastructure too off limits. And so, you know, the basic job description for the, the soldier to, to make it, you know, at its most basic element is like to get the quote unquote bad guys and to protect the civilians. That is the job description. And yes, that comes at some risk. So um, it has been, I mean, it's been horrifying to watch what is unfolding there. And um, it's very hard to see what any sort of peaceful path forward from this moment is, even based on what's already been done, even if they were to stop, even if they were to say now, like permanent ceasefire, all right, we're done, that's it, we did enough in terms of Hamas, it's impossible to see what the path forward is from here. That's actually my biggest fear is I'm like, you know, you could even end it today. I'm like, but at this point, like, what are you guys gonna do? Because as you laid out, like you know, at this point, we're in a middle ground strategy. I actually think they've basically boxed themselves into a corner where total war is their only strategy. One of the reasons why we had the bombings of Dresden and the fire bombings of Tokyo is, and, and people are interested, they should read Sean McKeegan's book called Stalin's War, where he argues vociferously against unconditional surrender against the Germans. Germans and against the Japanese. Controversial view, but the point that he makes is that it basically boxed us in from a tactical point of view where we're like, no, every, anything but the complete unconditional surrender of Nazi Germany and of Tokyo is acceptable, which means you can destroy 70% of their infrastructure and they still will fight because they're not going to capitulate. Now, it's a very controversial opinion, but actually he lays it out quite well. And one of the problems and fears I think I have here is at this point, you know, you've destroyed Gaza City. It's a city of 1.1 million. Uh, now what? Now, like you think you can just create some sort of like political, uh, it looks small occupying force well, of course, what they want to do is uh, ship all the Palestinians here. That's a more recent uh, thing that, that they even laid out in the Wall Street Journal. Shockingly enough, I'm talking about Israeli Knesset members. But let's put that aside and let's assume that their people are going to remain inside of this place. Well, what are we? What is the actual political project that you're pursuing? And I think you know they've boxed themselves into a corner where. Total destruction, really, and then what? You know, buying the future and hoping that the U.S. saves them in the future is probably the most likely path. Now, 
it's it's possible that we see some sort of resumption of the ceasefire negotiation, all that, that there isn't tons of international pressure, but I, I, I don't think so. If I had to bet, I would more likely bet on what uh, the defense minister said, where he's like, yeah, we're at the very least going to see two months remaining of this type of campaign. But, you know, I still come back to like, okay, but what happens the day after that? You know, are you just going to have a massive uh, military presence inside Gaza or around it? Another thing to, for people who don't know Israel called up 300,000 reservists. That is costing them $280 million per day. This could bankrupt the entire nation. Not alone, it's a small country if anybody's ever been there. All the military age males are now in the military. There's nobody working. Israel, one of their, you know, I think real claims is that they've built the first world nation and first world economy. First world economies don't run when all the military age people are no. gone. And not to mention, yeah. you know, um, Palestinians have been banned from working in Israel. Yes. Who often did who some often, like the lower, exactly. like lower do the, jobs. You know, the things that yes. the Israelis didn't want to do. Mm -hmm. um, anyone here in the U.S. will be familiar with the types of work that, you know, migrant laborers in our mm -hmm. context does. So, um, and that's also why those uh, Thai citizens were in Israel as well. Yep. But yeah, I mean, it's a huge, huge economic hit. But I don't know if you saw this article, Sagar, mm -hmm. we cover, Emily and I covered it while you were out about the quote unquote three options for the future. And one of them was, push everybody into Egypt, yes. like, you know, the ethnic cleansing plan that we've been talking about, um, which is the option that, you know, many ministers in the Likud party and other security cabinet ministers mm -hmm. have been floating and framing it as like, oh, humanitarian, they'll, they'll get to go wherever they want in the region. Um, so there's that option. One of them, just to show you how, what a horrific situation this already is and how preposterous, they're like, we're gonna build an artificial island like they do in Dubai, oh, yeah, and you know, true. and we'll just give them, yeah. we'll just give them new land. Like, yeah. well, you know, they'll be totally on an island by themselves. And even in this report, which I think was, I want to say it was Times of Israel, but mm -hmm. don't quote me on that. They're like, well, you know, Gaza City is so bombed down, you can't even rebuild it. It'd be easier just to rebuild like a totally new island. Which again, if you're talking about completely pushing 2.2 million people off of this little strip of land that you have, you know, had imprisoned them in and had pushed them into already, well, there's a word for that as well. Um, and it's not a pretty one. So in any case, those are the sorts of preposterous scenarios that they're floating right now. I think tomorrow we'll cover some of the way the U.S. is looking at this, the ideas of putting the Palestinian Authority in charge, which has its own problems as well. But, you know, we're already at a place where, um, you know, the city, the, the largest city where over a million people lived has been completely destroyed. You know, taking out al-Shifa was kind of like the last piece of taking out the, a core of um, Gaza-Palestinian civilian life. You've already got 1.8 million Palestinians displaced. Um, you already have at least one in every 56 uh, Gazans either killed or injured. That's where we already are this very short time in terms of you know how long wars normally go on into this conflict um, as we have this very small pause and uh, look towards what the future might be. I thought this piece from Haaretz, which by the way, Haaretz, yep under major assault from Israeli politicians as well, you know, threatening to pull their support, et cetera, et cetera, because they have done some actually good reporting during this war and, and in general do some good reporting. And we've framed them as sort of like the New York Times of, of Israel in terms of their political positioning. Put this up on the screen. They had a good report where they interviewed Palestinians about what this temporary ceasefire has meant for them. And the quote here in the headline, our lives have been destroyed. Temporary ceasefire offers little relief 
for Gazans mourning lost family and homes. They interviewed this woman, Isra, who's an English teacher. She's a newlywed. And she said, listen, life doesn't go back to normal during a ceasefire. Only now do we realize the extent of the destruction. She goes on to say, I wish there were no ceasefire um, because basically now she has to see and come face to face hmm. with how much of her life has been destroyed and, and will never come back. Um, she says, it's apparently like the aftermath of an earthquake. Nothing remains as it was. What are we guilty of? Israel's problem is with the resistance, Hamas. Why hurt civilians? Our lives have been destroyed. Our families have been broken. There are no houses left, only stones. Another student in Gaza said, for Gazans, a four-day ceasefire means looking for relatives to see if they're dead or alive. It's not just about getting food and water. The second priority is burying the dead and giving them their last respects. So that's the view from, you know, inside the Gaza Strip. Now we take a look at the scale of atrocities that are happening in Gaza uh, by Israel along with U.S. backing. Here's a report from uh, Crystal Ball. It's hard to look at what he's doing in Ukraine, what his forces are doing in Ukraine, and think that any um, uh, ethical, moral individual could justify that. It's difficult to look at the sorry. It's difficult to look at some of the images and imagine that any well-thinking, serious, mature leader would do that. <clears throat> so I can't talk to his psychology, but uh, I think we can all speak to his depravity. This is war. It is combat, it is bloody, it is ugly, and it's gonna be messy. And innocent civilians are going to be hurt going forward. I wish I could tell you something different. I wish that that wasn't gonna happen, uh, but it is, it is going to happen. That was National Security Council spokesman John Kirby holding back tears as he spoke of innocents killed by Russia and then casually dismissing innocents killed by Israel as mere collateral damage, chalking up to the unavoidable costs of war. The Biden administration has spent the last several years now rending their garments about the international rules-based order, decrying, with plenty of justification, by the way, Russian atrocities committed against Ukrainians. Biden framed this struggle in grand idealistic terms as a fight to protect the post-World War II order, our arming of the Ukrainians as a noble front in our war for democracy, for human rights. My, what a difference a new war makes. Democrats and other administration officials who had no trouble spotting war crimes when they were committed by resistance lib boogeyman Putin suddenly decided they really weren't qualified to opine on the topic once Israel launched a complete siege of Gaza and bombed everything from refugee camps to schools to hospitals to every sort of critical infrastructure. In the early days, this took the, the form of vaguely encouraging Israel to not commit any war crimes, please, once it became absurdly obvious that the entire military operation was being conducted on the basis of seeing how many war crimes Israel could get away with, they then shifted tactics, adopting a more philosophical posture, you might say. Who can really say whether they're committing war crimes? What even are war crimes, really? Now, there are a wealth of examples here, but let me give you just a few. Here's Senator Ben Cardin on Russia. There's no question about Russia's crime of aggressions, no question about their committing crimes against humanity and genocide. We've had hearings in this committee 
that have established that. We've had hearings in the U.S. Helsinki Commission that has established the fact that the, this, all the conditions for genocide have been committed by, by Russia. This same senator was suddenly less sure of himself in a recent interview by The New Yorker's Isaac Chotner. Chotner asked Cardin, do you have a sense of whether Israel is operating according to the rules of war? Cardin dismissively responds, I know that once elected to the United States Senate, I'm supposed to be an expert on every subject. Chotner then replies, sir, you are the head of the Foreign Relations Committee. But I suppose it would be unfair to pick on Senator Cardin here, who is simply taking his cues from so many others. Here's White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan on Russia versus Jake Sullivan on Israel. I think we can all say that these are mass atrocities. These are war crimes. These are shocking and brutal acts that are completely unacceptable beyond the pale for the international community. So whatever label one wants to affix to them, the bottom line is this, there must be accountability. And the United States will work with the international community to make sure there's accountability. You said today, uh, as you said a number of times, about the importance of the laws of war being upheld. Um, Israel has killed around 11,000 Palestinians. Around two-thirds of those are women and children. Uh, the situation in the hospitals is dire. Israel has dropped an astronomical amount of uh, ordnance in very built-up areas. Is Israel, in your view, abiding by the laws of war? And well, if it is, how do you come to that conclusion? Well, as I said yesterday, I, Jake Sullivan, standing here, am not in a position to be judge and jury to make that determination. It's a legal determination. This not a judge and jury formulation has become the standard go-to when anyone is asked about Israeli war crimes. I have lost track of how many cowardly Democrats have deployed this moral cowardice in the face of undeniable horrors. Republicans, for their part, they're mostly more brazenly bloodthirsty in their own justifications. This tone, of course, comes right from the top. President Biden himself, no trouble calling Putin a war criminal, accusing him of genocide on Israel. He has not only demurred, as his advisors did there, but he has actively defended war crimes, such as raiding al-Shifa hospital, causing untold civilian deaths, numbering in at least the dozens, including premature babies. Now, if you're thinking, this war doesn't compare in any way to the brutality that was unleashed on Ukrainians, you are 100% correct. What Russia unleashed pales in comparison to the horrors inflicted on all 2.2 million people in Gaza. It's not even close in the amount of destruction, in the absolute number of civilians killed, in the targeting of civilian infrastructure, and in the denial of the basic needs of life. Substack journalist Caitlin Johnstone recently did an analysis comparing just the impact on children alone. As she writes, Israel has killed as many children as Russia reportedly kidnapped, an action which led to charges being filed at the International Criminal Court against Putin. Why, she asks, is one a war crime and the other apparently fine? Both are awful, obviously. But it would seem pretty obvious that murder is worse than kidnapping. However, we're somehow supposed to reserve our horror only for Putin. Of course, we all know the answer to why we're supposed to apply completely different standards to these two atrocities. It's never been more blatantly clear than right now. International law is nothing but a cudgel to be used against official enemy states. When it's the US, it's our allies, suddenly these crimes are erased, they're excused. And the people who were just pretending to care so deeply suddenly plead complete ignorance. Even the New York Times has begun to report on the unprecedented horrors being unleashed on the people of Gaza. Just based simply on the likely understated numbers, which we know today, they report that, quote, Gaza civilians under Israeli barrage are being killed at a historic pace. They go on. While wartime death tolls will never be exact, 
Experts say that even a conservative reading of the casualty figures reported from Gaza shows the pace of death during Israel's campaign has few precedents in this century. People are being killed in Gaza more quickly, they say, than even in the deadliest moments of U.S.-led attacks in Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan, which were themselves widely criticized by human rights groups. This article cites the number of targets and the wildly destructive 2,000-pound bombs that have been used. For reference, in the U.S. bombing of Mosul, we judged even 500-pound bombs to be too large for that type of urban combat. The number of women and children killed in Gaza is fast approaching the number that the U.S. killed in 20 years of war and occupation in Afghanistan. It's double the number who've been killed in two years of Russia's war in Ukraine. Now, Ukraine is, of course, a nation of nearly 44 million. Tiny, tiny Gaza is home to roughly 2 million. More than 60,000 buildings have been destroyed in Gaza, and between the level of destruction and the leveling of critical civilian infrastructure, all of northern Gaza has been rendered unlivable. All of this before we talk about the desperate siege conditions clearly amounting to collective punishment, which have been posed on everyone from the elderly to the premature babies gasping for air in hospitals with no electricity. If these politicians and so-called diplomats are suddenly ignorant of the laws of war, they should feel free to seek the advice of experts, such as this gentleman, UN Relief Chief Martin Griffiths. So you have been, you know, uh, on the front line of this since the beginning, but you've also been, you know, UN Special Envoy and advisor to many, many, many issues. Yemen, Syria, you've been in UNICEF, you've been doing this for a long time, head of uh, relief operations, NGOs, the whole lot. Have you ever seen anything like this? Well, how do you assess what's happening right now in terms of humanitarian needs in Gaza? The worst ever, Christian, and I don't say that lightly. I mean, I started off in my 20s dealing with the Khmer Rouge, and you remember how bad that was, the killing fields and so forth. But 68% of the people killed in Gaza are women and children. They stopped counting the numbers of children killed after four and a half thousand had been counted. Nobody goes to school in Gaza. Nobody knows what their future is. Hospitals have become a place of war, not of curing. No, I don't think I've seen anything like this before. It's complete and utter carnage. I would ask you to really take those words in. When even typical Israel apologist outlet, the New York Times, is acknowledging that the scale of the atrocities committed here outpace any that we've seen in modern history, you know we are watching something historic in the level of evil and butchery. And make no mistake, for all their pleading ignorance, the Biden administration knows that too. That's why they worried that this temporary pause might allow the world to see and really understand what has been done with our backing, with our bombs, with our support by our client state. Apparently, hypocrisy and selective outrage has always been the rule of the international rules-based order. Not a soul could deny that now. History will judge with horror those with power who enabled these crimes against humanity. Historians will write that this was when the U.S. discarded its last tattered thread of credibility. CNN's uh, Nima Balgir investigates the Palestinians that have been released by Israelis. And it turns out that 80% of those identified by Israel as eligible for release in the recent hostage deal have not been charged with a crime. Here's her report. 
The moment a mother finally sees her daughter for the first time after eight years in an Israeli prison. The relief, the anguish, the utter joy. <laughs> Melek Salman was part of the first wave of hostage prisoner exchange between Israel and Hamas. It was painful because I was leaving the sisters I made inside prison, and I feel like my freedom was paid for with the blood of the 14,000 Gazans killed. Melek, then 16, was charged with an attempted stabbing of Israelis. Israeli authorities say no one was injured, and yet she was convicted of attempted murder and sentenced to 10 years. When her family appealed, it came down to nine. Melek served almost eight of those seven years, spending the remainder of her teenage years behind bars. Her family maintains her innocence. Fatina, Melek's mother, had dreamed of this day for years, to embrace her daughter, to share that joy with her community. She says this was denied. The Israeli authorities were with us from 2 p.m. They surrounded the house and ripped down the decorations of any display of celebration. They stole the joy of my daughter's release. To be released doesn't mean you are fully free. Israeli National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gavir, who was himself found guilty in 2007, before he was a minister, of incitement to racism against Arabs and supporting a terror organization. Ben-Gavir instructed Israeli forces to use an iron fist preventing Palestinians from celebrating the release of their loved ones, saying the prisoners were terrorists. Expressions of joy are support for terrorism. Celebrations of victory give strength to those same human scum, those Nazis. The policy here is very, very, very clear. Not to allow these expressions of joy and resolutely strive to make contact and stop any support for these Nazis. Another night, another scene of Israeli forces removing well-wishers and journalists at the home of a released Palestinian prisoner, taking a heavy-handed approach as ordered by their national security minister. In Bethlehem, in the occupied West Bank, they were able to defy Ben Gavir, celebrating the release of Fatma Shaheen and others from the city. Fatma left her home walking and returned almost seven months later with life-changing injuries. Shot by Israeli soldiers and accused of attempted murder. They accused me of carrying out a stabbing. It's not true. They opened fire on me. I was hit in the spine with two bullets. Two vertebrae were damaged. They replaced them with titanium. I cannot feel my legs or stand up. They also removed five centimeters from my liver and one kidney. For months, Fatma's family say they were denied access, even as her detention stretched on. It was forbidden for my relatives to visit me, or even the lawyers. I was not allowed to make any calls. Israel says Fatma attempted murder, and yet she was only detained, not charged. She didn't go to trial. She wasn't given any opportunity to defend herself. And this is a story we keep hearing again and again from released prisoners, that they aren't given due process, and yet this crime exists alongside their names. The Israeli prison service responded to these allegations, saying national security prisoners who were released from the Israeli prison during the past two days were serving time for serious crimes, such as attempted murder, assault, and throwing explosives. All prisoners in IPS custody are held according to the law. That's not true. 
CNN broke down the numbers in a list of 300 Palestinian prisoners identified by Israel as eligible for release. 80% are listed as just detained, which means they have not been formally sentenced. Israel operates two systems of law in the occupied territories, Palestinians under the military, Israelis under civil law, creating a low bar for the arrest of increasing numbers of Palestinians. And as Israeli hardliners like Ben Gavir and others in this far-right government seek to characterize every Palestinian as a terrorist, that number is rising every day. The Israeli Defense Force didn't uh, respond to our request for comment. But the numbers speak for themselves, Jake. That was just a very small sample that was released by Israel's Department of Justice. But the number of Palestinians who have been swept up into Israeli jails within the last two, three months are almost at 9,000. And if Fatma and Malek are, are, are any, give us any kind of insight into what those other thousands of Palestinians are going through, there is a real concern that there is no distinction between a Palestinian and a terrorist in the way that Israel chooses to um, apply its law to them, its martial law. Jake. Nim al in East Jerusalem, thank you so much for that report. Now, back to the evil and monstrosities on Gaza. The numbers are clear. Israel's killing of civilians is unprecedented. Here's Anna Kasparian from the uh, Young Turks news channel. In a stunning new piece, New York Times reporter Lauren Leatherby sheds light on the insanely high number of Palestinian civilians who have perished as a result of Israel's military campaign in Gaza. That campaign has included intense aerial bombardment of North Gaza and airstrikes targeting hospitals, refugee camps, UN buildings, mosques and churches. And while Palestinians in northern Gaza have been displaced by forced evacuations to the south, that region of the strip has also been suffering airstrikes by the Israeli Defense Forces. Now, in this new New York Times article, Leatherby notes that civilians are being killed at a historic pace. In fact, people are being killed in Gaza more quickly than in the deadliest moments of the US-led attacks in Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan. Now, keep in mind that those US-led attacks were widely criticized, both by us and by human rights groups. But those also happen to be the same attacks invoked by the Israeli government in an effort to justify the IDF's brutality in Gaza. Now, if you take the Israelis at face value, You'd think, you'd believe they're being tactical, careful, and mindful of civilians to prevent the high volume of casualties. The Times notes that Israeli forces say they use the smallest available ordnance to achieve their strategic objectives in order to cause the minimal adverse effect on civilians. In fact, Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Conricus, who serves as an IDF spokesperson, emphasizes this claim repeatedly in cable news appearances and in print journalist interviews. Now, we do a lot in order to prevent and where possible minimize the killing or wounding of civilians. We focus on Hamas, he says. But the numbers make it pretty clear that his statement isn't really rooted in reality. 
Women and children account for nearly 70% of all deaths reported in Gaza, even though most combatants are men. An extraordinary statistic, Rick Brennan, the Regional Emergency Director for the World Health Organization's Eastern Mediterranean Office, said at an event this month. According to estimates from the independent British research group known as Iraq Body Count, more women and children have been reported killed in Gaza in less than two months than the roughly 7,700 civilians documented as killed by US forces and their international allies in the entire first year of the invasion of Iraq in 2003. Just Really gonna ask you to let that information sink in, because that is unbelievable, that is stunning. And guess what, a similar theme plays out when you compare the death toll in Gaza to the number of civilians the United States killed in Afghanistan. But the numbers are even more insane when you consider the length of time in which these civilians were killed. The number of women and children reported killed in Gaza has already started to approach the roughly 12,400 civilians documented to have been killed by the United States and its allies in Afghanistan during nearly 20 years of war. And that's according to Netta Crawford, a University of Oxford professor who is co-director of Brown University's Cost of War Project. Now, in its analysis, the Times chose to use the most conservative estimates of Palestinian casualties. Now, the Washington Post, by contrast, recently noted that more than 14,000 Palestinians have been killed. Now, with that in mind, in the nine-month Battle of Mosul, which Israeli officials have cited as a comparison, an estimated total of 9,000 to 11,000 civilians were killed by all sides in the conflict, including many thousands killed by the Islamic State. And that's according to the Associated Press. A similar number of women and children have already been reported killed in Gaza in less than two months. Clearly, this comparative analysis provided by the Times really helps to put Israel's brutal war in Gaza in perspective. For example, we've been reading and watching pundit after pundit condemn Vladimir Putin as an evil butcher following his invasion into Ukraine. And look, to be clear, Putin absolutely should be condemned, no question about it. But one should ask why the same condemnations aren't being uttered about Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and Israel's far right government. More than twice as many women and children have already been reported killed in Gaza than have been confirmed killed in Ukraine according to United Nations figures after almost two years of Russian attacks. More children have been killed in Gaza since the Israeli assault began than in the world's major conflict zones combined across two dozen countries during all of last year, even with the war in Ukraine, according to UN tallies of verified child deaths in armed conflict. Now, Israel said it had engaged more than 15,000 targets before reaching a brief ceasefire in recent days. And of course, that's all about the hostage exchanges. But it is not just the scale of the strikes. It's also the high civilian death toll having a lot to do with the weaponry provided to them by the United States. And that includes US made 2000 pound bombs that can flatten apartment buildings. In one documented case, for instance, Israel used at least two 
2,000 pound bombs during an October 31st airstrike on Jabalia, a densely populated area just north of Gaza City, flattening buildings and creating impact craters 40 feet wide, according to an analysis of satellite images, photos and videos by the New York Times. Air Wars independently confirmed that at least 126 civilians were killed, more than half of them children. Experts say that Israel's use of these weapons in a region as densely populated as Gaza is shocking. Mark Garlosko, a military advisor for the Dutch organization PAX and a former senior intelligence analyst at the Pentagon, said of Israel's use of these bombs, quote, it's beyond anything that I've ever seen in my career. And to find a historical comparison for so many large bombs in such a small area, he also said that you may have to go back to Vietnam or the Second World War. In fighting during this century, by contrast, US military officials have believed that the most common American aerial bomb, a 500 pound weapon, was far too large for most targets when battling the Islamic State in urban areas like Mosul, Iraq, and Raqqa, Syria. And after initially questioning the death toll in Gaza, the Biden administration now concedes that the true figures for civilian casualties may be even worse. Barbara Leaf, the Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs told a House committee this month that American officials thought the civilian casualties were very high, frankly, and it could be that they're even higher than are being cited. So what exactly does Netanyahu have to say for himself? I mean, he points to atrocities committed by other nation states in the past, right? I mean, he cited the accidental bombing of a children's hospital by Britain's Royal Air Force when it was targeting the Gestapo headquarters in Copenhagen in 1945. During visits to Israel by Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Israeli officials privately invoked the 1945 US atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which together, tragically killed more than 100,000 people. In other words, Netanyahu and members of his coalition government have been engaging in endless whataboutism. So let me do the same. What about the modern international laws of war that were developed in response to the very atrocities committed during World War II? You know, the atrocities that he likes to point to as an excuse for what Israel is currently carrying out. In 1949, the Geneva Conventions codified protections for civilians during wartime, making clear that militaries must not target civilians directly or indiscriminately bomb civilian areas. The Geneva Conventions also state that accidental harm and the killing of civilians must not exceed the direct military advantage to be gained. And guess what, on July 6, 1951, the newly formed state of Israel ratified the Geneva Conventions, making it one of 196 countries to do so at the time. But Netanyahu certainly doesn't act like that ratification ever occurred, since he insists on using atrocities committed before the Geneva Conventions as an excuse to brutalize and slaughter Palestinian civilians. But one thing is clear, in an era where all we would get is one side of the story, that tended to justify the actions of the Israeli government and the IDF. It is a breath of fresh air to see analysis like this 
a sobering look at the number of civilian deaths, a comparative analysis showing just the unusual high volume of civilian casualties compared to other wars that have taken place in recent years. This is important reporting. And when, you know, when legacy media outlets like the New York Times put out reports like this, they should get positive reinforcement. They should be applauded for it. Obviously, the New York Times isn't perfect. Obviously, the Washington Post isn't perfect. Obviously, CNN isn't perfect. But there are these little breakthroughs in their reporting that really give you a realistic look at what's happening on the ground in Gaza. And I will thank them for doing that because I know the kind of attacks that they might receive for doing so, right? Allegations of anti Semitism, allegations that they don't believe in Israel's right to exist, absolute, complete, utter nonsense that's only meant to silence people, including journalists. Of which, by the way, 67 have been killed as a result of this war and the IDF's aerial bombardment of Gaza. So, a lot of this stuff you should keep in mind. As you hear propaganda, to be clear, from both sides, you need to look at the civilian casualties. You need to question whether or not the actions taken by the IDF are going to lead to peace for the Israeli people in the long run, or whether what they're engaging in only serves to breed more extremist ideology. And I would venture to say that is what's happening right now. And it's a damn shame because innocent lives are being lost. And in the end, no one is likely to be safer as a result of it. That's it for this edition of the 801. Thanks for joining us. I will talk to you in the morning. I'm Kent Garrett, and do not forget that the 801 does not leave the station. It's on the station. Have a good day, and I will talk to you in the morning. 